It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. Being a first responder is not an easy job. Putting your life on the line day after day for those you serve. We entrust these brave men and women to run into the gates of hell, and we don't really get to see the human side and how certain things can affect them. They are exposed to things that most of us average folks will never have to experience in our lifetime. Death and destruction, the trauma that they bury deep down inside in order to keep doing what they do every day. Hazards of the job can take its toll especially when you respond to a devastating incident that the whole world becomes witness to. It's been 25 years since Oklahoma City suffered the deadliest domestic terrorist attack in America's history, killing 168 men, women, and children, and injuring close to 800. My co-host was there front and center, serving his community as a firefighter. He was captured in a photo that became an iconic symbol of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 when he was cradling the body of one-year-old Bailey Allman. He served the citizens of Oklahoma City for over 31 years and has now dedicated his life to speak to other first responders, discussing the brutal realities of a life spent responding to citizens in their darkest hours. He also shares his personal story of how that day in 1995, along with other traumas, took a toll on his life and his family. Having suffered in silence for many years, he now shares how he found his way out of the darkness in the hopes of helping others to avoid the failure and pitfalls, along with encouraging them to reach out when they need help. I am truly honored to have with me today who I consider my friend, retired major of the Oklahoma City Fire Department, Chris Fields. How you doing, Chris? I'm good, Robin. Definitely a friend, yes. And thank you for having me. I'm honored to, uh, to share the show with you here. And you know, first of all, before we even get into this, I have to tell you, thank you for your service. Thank you for all that you have done for the community. And thank you for continuing to go out there and share some of the things you've been through in order to help others who don't really understand that they're not alone and they're seeing so many things that are just astronomical. I mean, us human beings, us normal human beings, we face tragedy on a daily basis, things happen. But for you being a first responder, you are going into places where most of us never will and you're seeing things hearing things, feeling things, smelling things that just are unimaginable at times. Um, well, thank you for that. And uh, it is, it's, you know, we, we, uh, we see things and do things and I never even took in, he said, smell things, but that's true. Uh, things, you know, that the average citizen doesn't and shouldn't have to. That's, that's why, that's why we do it. And it was an, it was an honor to, to do the job. If I thought I could handle it again, I, I, I'd do, uh, I'd do it all over again. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't change a thing about my career. So let's talk about what actually got you into being a fighter fighter. Were you one of those kids that kind of grew up that said, oh, I want to be a fireman, or is it something that was like part of your family? 
Um, you know, I had a I had an uncle that was on the job on the Oklahoma City Fire Department. You know, at, growing up, I thought it was cool that he was on the fire department and everything. But the I guess the main when I was around it, my my best friend growing up is uh, church we went to. Was, he was a preacher's kid, and but his dad was the Ellen was the our pastor of the church. He was the chaplain of the Oklahoma City Fire Department when I was growing up. So when I would stay the night with my buddy Greg, who actually has a church out in Arizona now. Uh, he, uh, we would go, you know, we'd go be around the firemen and, and that kind of stuff. And then, uh, some of my youth programs that I was involved in at church, some of the sponsors or the mentors of those groups were firemen. We had a large, uh, Oklahoma City Fire Department presence, members of our church growing up. So that's kind of how I was really exposed to it and thought it was, uh, you know, it was something I, I thought, man, I would love to do that. And when I was around them and saw how they, the brotherhood they had, and and the way that uh, they were received and the way they were you know looked upon by the by the citizens was uh, was very appealing. So that's just something I uh, dabbled around a few years after high school and did a little college here and there, and then just said uh, that's what I want to do. So I got on when I was 20 years old. Wow, just a youngster. I was I was I was two weeks two weeks before my 21st birthday is when I was the day I started rookie school. You know, and I just have to say this because I think it's funny, but you know, the fireman calendars that go around all the time, did you ever have to pose in one? Uh, no, I was never <laughs> quite, uh, I was qualified for the fire service. I wasn't qualified for that. I know. I just, I just had to throw that out there because I know people talk about this and I have a few friends that are retired firefighters out here and they're actually doing the pinup models with the former firefighters to raise money for somebody. Oh, yeah. So I thought that was kind of funny, you know, and I remember back to a time when I was like 19, 20, I wanted to be a fireman, but I failed, oh, yeah. cool. I failed the physical test because I had just gotten in a car accident, so I couldn't do what they call the dummy carry up the burning building. Oh, yeah. I think they still do that, right, in the fire academy? Uh, in the fire academy, in the testing process, they have a what they call a CPAT test now, and it's where they you have to drag a charged hose line, you have to uh, hammer a, a sledge, a wedge so far, and then you have to drag like a 150-pound dummy so many feet and you got to do it in a certain amount of time. So it's a, I didn't have to do that when I got hired. It was a little easier physical in 1985 when I was hired, but uh, it's, it's, it used to be, you could almost get by and then get in shape while you're in rookie school because they really pushed being in great physical shape. Nowadays, you better be in pretty darn good shape when you go apply to get on the fire department these days. So how long were you a firefighter before the, um, let's see, you said you got in in 1985. So the Oklahoma bombing mm -hmm. took place in 1995. So you were in the, the service for about 10 years, correct? Uh, that is correct. It was um, April of 95, so I was just uh, three months short of having uh, 10 years on. And uh, at that time, I I guess I was maybe a little bit of an overachiever. I wasn't that, I wasn't that in high school or schoolwork at all, but I had, by then, going into my 10th year, I was already a captain on the fire department. Wow, so. look at you moving through the ranks pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, I probably should have applied that in my earlier days in school too. But <laughs> so, so let me let me see if I if I recall the order of this. Does the engineer become before the captain? I think you have to drive the fire truck before you become the captain, right? Yes, you go firefighter. Everybody has different titles. We call them just a driver. Some people call them engineers. And then there's a captain, and then there's a chief. Uh, a lot of people are always ask me about Oklahoma City. They don't you see a major rank or a lieutenant rank in the fire department. And that was just a deal that uh, the union got involved. And, of course, you know, union doing their job, they're always looking for a way for their people to make more money. So they started what they called a career development step. 
So once you became a captain, and you didn't have to, but if you wanted to become a major, you had to get so many college hours and go to this two-week academy, and then you were given a major, and it was a pay raise. So um, that's how the major came about. It was just an extension of, of captain. Well, that's pretty cool, though. You retired with the rank of major. At least that's what the title is I see everywhere when they talk about you. Yes, yes. I was um, I was a major, and I retired, um, golly, it's been over three years now, March 1st, 2017, after 31 years and seven months and 16 days. <laughs> you got that down to the days, but not the hours and the minutes. I'm just teasing. No, I'm just teasing. Don't have the hours and minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's really funny is the other day my mom came walking in the kitchen and she handed me this copy of Reader's Digest that just came out in April. And she put it down on the counter and she pointed to a particular photograph. And she goes, isn't this the guy that you always talk about, this firefighter named Chris? (laughs) And I'm like, wow, okay, yeah, this is the guy and I'm actually going to be talking to him. And you know, it's a tough topic I know to talk about. And I remember seeing the footage going on in the newsroom because I was working in the newsroom watching this happen. I can't even fathom what it's like as a human being, much less as a firefighter, going into that type of a war zone. And I know that even when you talk about it today, I've heard several times on different interviews it's difficult because those are traumatic events that we never truly get over. We get past them because we have to. But are you okay with us going back and just kind of revisiting that time in April of 1995 and talking about your day when that happened? Yes, ma'am, I am. I've, uh, you know, early, uh, early on, you know, I was reluctant to talk about it and everything, but you know, with the with the, and we'll get into it, you know, with the healing and everything and now it's um it's therapeutic for me anytime I get to share it and, you know, hoping that there's a good outcome when I share it. But you know, I, it sounds so cliche, but it's when I figured this out when as I've been speaking that you know, if one person is affected or changed or takes the steps they need to, you know, and I say that because I've finished a, at a speaking deal before and had, you know, maybe just one person come up to me as I'm leaving the room or at the elevator and a guy or girl say, how you described me to a T. Everything you were going through is what I'm going through now. And, you know, and I keep up with them and they reach out and get the help they need. So, so it just comes down to that when I share it, like I say, if one person can, can take something from it and, and better themselves, then I'm all for it. Well, take us back to that day. How did your day start? Um, it was a Wednesday. And I always remember it's a Wednesday because at the fire station, we have certain things we do on certain days of the week if you're on duty that day. So Wednesdays at the station I was at was the uh, the yard maintenance day. And I just remember guys specifically being out mowing and uh, weeding and all that and, and taking care of the fire station grounds. And we were in the station, me and the other two officers, basically talking about what we were going to go to the grocery store and get for breakfast and dinner. And, uh, of course, we all know what time it was, 9.02, but I, I can always say about 9 o'clock was um, when we felt the uh, – Felt the state. My station was 17 blocks north of the uh, Murrah building, the bomb site, and we felt the um, felt the station rattle, the windows rattled. I mean, the station shook. You know, the, we heard the the boom. Did you guys have any and, idea at that uh, time what was going on, or did you even think it might have been an explosion or anything like that? Uh, no, our first thing thought was a um, we thought a train had derailed just because at the at the time there was an actual operating 
uh, ice cream plant right across the street from the station, which is not a good thing for a firefighter to have that easy access to ice cream. But <laughs> we uh, we frequented over there quite often. But they had a train uh, train yard right next to it where they could bring stuff in. And uh, we thought we actually thought a train maybe had derailed. I mean that was you know we and we we talk about it now. We're going. We didn't even hear a train coming or going. So, but that was our first thought because of the, you know, no, no thinking it, that it'd be an explosion. But we went outside and looked, and when we looked back down south towards downtown Oklahoma City, which I say was 17 blocks away, we saw the large plume of black smoke, and we knew that we would be dispatched just because of our location to where we were located. And uh, plus, I was I was an officer on the hazardous materials unit that day. I was a hazmat. Uh, technician so the uh especially with it being an explosion but we were all thinking a natural gas explosion uh was our kind of what we were thinking so we self-dispatched ourselves and uh i remember we had to stop and pick up one guy because he was just he had his head down headphones ear protection on we eating and uh he never he felt it's funny he said he felt he kind of felt the boom and then he felt a rush of wind at his back but he actually thought it was we have a air force base just about 10 miles east of us, Tinker Air Force Base. And he thought the jet, there were some jets out there, and he thought one of them just did like the sound barrier deal, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And it's really what he thought, but he said he felt the rush of wind at his back. And he just got weedy, and we had to stop and hit the air horn to get his attention to get him on the rig. So we headed down towards the, you know, by that time it was on the radio, and they were giving what street and the address. And, and when we were probably about eight or nine blocks away still, uh, I distinctly remember getting on the radio and reporting right then that we were seeing that far away. We were seeing uh, storefront windows blown out and people walking out of their businesses kind of days, you know, not not injured, but just days like what in the world, you know, because the glass blew out and that kind of stuff. So we um, we were still leaning towards natural gas explosion because we couldn't think of anything else, you know, that could have vibrated, you know, felt it and vibrated that much, you know, 17 blocks away. So, um so we proceeded on to Fifth Street, which is where it was located, and uh, like I say, came upon the building and, and saw it for the first time. It was just, uh, it was just crazy to, to. I still stand there and think about it and stand like in awe that I know we didn't. I know adrenaline was flowing. We were moving and keep going, but you felt like you just stopped and stared at that building for a minute. That's a long minute because you you didn't even get the call to go. <laughs> you just showed up, and here is what you're seeing. It's kind of like some of my. Um, people that I know that work at Ten House across the street from where 9-11 happened, you know, the whole thing with mm-hmm. the towers, they talked about the same thing because they heard the noises and jumped on the truck and just went and they couldn't believe what was going on. And I'm sure, I mean, I've been through traumatic things where I've seen some pretty horrific things. And if I just stop for a moment and I look in my mind, I can actually see it. And I'm sure today, even all these years later, you still see that image in your head. Oh, I can, I still see the image and I still, I can still have that feeling of, uh, and I tell people when we were, got close within a block or two, we could, we weren't walking on the pavement. We were walking on glass and debris. And so we were like, felt like you were, I mean, you weren't, you weren't walking on pavement. And, uh, and still today when I, when I, like you said, to stop and think for a moment, put myself in that position, I can see that building and everybody's seen the images of the building, you know on the news and in photos, especially the aerial views looking down. And I've got some photos of some firefighters standing in front looking up and just to see, and I, and I don't discount anything of the lives that were taken, but to, if you would have asked me right then, 
and said, there's only, not only, I think you know what I'm saying, but to yeah. say only 168 people were going to die in that building, I would have, I would have switched the numbers. I would have said over 800, <laughs> over 800 dead and maybe 160 some injuries because I didn't, I didn't know if anybody was going to live at all that was in that building. That's just how it looked at the time. And we know from history, I mean, we've seen this in movies. I mean, Hollywood glamorizes being firefighters and they don't really show mm -hmm. what you guys go through. And I, you know, I've heard you talk about this several times and I can't even imagine walking up. I know what death smells like. I know what burning metal smells like. It's not a good smell. And I can't even imagine when you walk up and you see this building blown in half. Take us back to that day and the, the thoughts running through your head. I know that you're a firefighter. You're trained to do this. Uh -huh. But the human side of you has to sneak in there and just say, holy shit, what am I walking into? <laughs> oh, no doubt. And something about the fire service, and, and it's, changed, it's changed over the years. Of course, it's had to keep up with the times. But, you know, in 1985 and even up through 95, um, you're trained pretty much in rookie school is all about the physical aspect of the job. There's no, there's no warning of the mental aspect of the job. And so, you know, by that time in my career, we'd had a house fire, you know, that killed three of our firefighters in 89, and we had had some flooding. I mean, we've had, we had traumatic calls, and, and it doesn't always have to be a big scene to be a traumatic call, you know. Right. We make calls, you know, car wrecks and shooting and suicides, just all the first aid stuff. But that's one of the things that I'm glad to see these days is the, the mental aspect of the job that's covered now in rookie school but uh, but but that day was just a um, it was you, you you felt like you had to keep yourself from stopping and just standing and looking you know once we were inside the uh, inside the building looking around um, and and finding I would say probably about an hour and a half into the incident is when we actually talked to our last what we call our live person of the day we were on the scene till 11 o'clock that night and from 10 30 a.m till we went back to the station we didn't encounter it was it was recovery mode for my crew where the part of the building we were in the rest of the day it was pretty much uh uh following we had uh dogs we had we were with the um, units that came in because we got help, help from all over the country with the u.s with the usar teams uh you know i think one came from arizona florida california new york um and um it was just you would you got to the point to where when these they had cadaver dogs they had live scent dogs and these dogs would hit on these scent and if you couldn't you had to mark it with spray paint you know that area especially if you couldn't see them and if, the, if you could tell if the body wasn't viable and, and I, I got to the point to where that's what i was hoping for i was hoping that any dog that hit a scent that it wasn't something we were going to be able to see because there's just there's just images you can never i mean they don't haunt me today or anything but there's just some images of of you can imagine that type of explosion, what it does to the to the human body. There were just some images that uh, you know I would I wouldn't want my worst enemy to ever have to see and go through. But um, it was just something we weren't prepared for. I mean, we had started some kind of USAR training, heavy rescue training, you know. But it was just I just don't know. If, even if you've got the training, that's whether no matter what it is, fire service, uh, fighting fire, cutting people out of cars, the training aspect is just you can never duplicate or replicate real life, and so. Um, it was uh, it was just a shock to see uh, that much damage, and like I said again, for the the, the death toll to only be 168 was uh, it still floors me. 
and the idea that um, this was something that most of us Americans, much less anyone in the world that saw it on television, any of the coverage, to know that I believe there were 18 children that died from this. Am I correct in that? Something uh, like 19. that? 19. Okay. Yeah, ni- ni- 19 children in the, uh, it was called the America's Kids Daycare. And there was 19, 19 children in there that were uh, killed and several with uh, pretty much life-altering injuries. Uh, I mean, some that are still, I still see them today, some of the kids that have grown up, they're in their 20s and <laughs> 30s now. And, uh, but, uh, you know, just not, not to mention the mental injuries, you know, they sustained, but uh, some of the physical injuries they sustained. But, yeah, 19, 19 children were, were killed that day. And, you know, everyone knows your story, that you are the one captured with little Bailey in your arms. And I've, I've heard you talk about this so many times, and it just, it brings me to tears because you've said a few things that I don't think most people even realize that, I mean, I've heard the story. A lot of people know the story, mm-hmm. the, the captured photo, but let's talk about how that incident happened. Let's how let's talk about how you got Bailey in your arms. And then I want to touch on uh, the fact that uh, you've often mentioned how guilty you felt about that mm-hmm. photo for a number of reasons. So if you want to go into that, well, I would, okay. I would love for you to share that with everyone. Okay. You bet. Um, it was uh, probably man, no more than 10 or 15 minutes into the incident when uh, we had helped the police, Oklahoma city police department, get a lady out of the basement that was just, she wasn't trapped by any like uh, building debris, concrete, or anything. She was like ceiling wire, suspension wire, and stuff had her <clears throat> tangled up. So we helped get her out, and then our incident commander gave us an assignment to go to the uh, back side of the building to go in there and start search and rescue. Assigned us to that division, and uh, as we were making our way to the what would be the south side of the building, a gentleman. I mean. I didn't see him like come around the corner, come out of a door. He would just boom. He was just in front of me. And he said, I have a critical infant. And, and I always said a gentleman, I mean, I know who it is now. His name was uh, John Avery. He was a sergeant with the Oklahoma city police department. And I always says this gentleman, like I didn't know he was a policeman. But then when I look at the photo of him handing me Bailey, he's got on a t-shirt that says Oklahoma city police. He's got a hat on, he's got a gun on his side, but I never, I just never picked up on any of that. I kept just saying a gentleman, handed me this baby but and he and still being in contact with uh, sergeant avery and talked to him a few times of course he's retired also but i talked to him a few times he tells me i was the third person that he came across that he was trying to get bailey looked at uh, 1995 i don't know how much they do now but i know in 1995 uh police officers didn't do a whole lot of first aid you know so he was just like i had this critical infant firefighters do first aid so he said he was just you know trying to find a, a firefighter to to give her to and uh, and that's not taken away from me being the third one that the other guys weren't doing it. They, they were just, you know, they were, well, you know, go over here, we're doing this, you know, so I understand. But I just, we were walking there and I just said, here, I'll take her. And uh, I told my crew to go on because I was going to take Bailey over to this ambulance because I, I saw an ambulance across the street. And what I did was I was, uh, I had to clear some uh, concrete dust and stuff out of her throat. And I wasn't getting any signs of life, no, what we call the ABCs, no airway, no breathing. Or circulation. She had a slight open skull fracture. So I took her across the street to these, these uh, paramedics at the ambulance. And I echoed the same thing Sergeant Avery did. I said, I have a critical infant. And I never, I never saw the photo. That's a whole nother story. I never saw the photo until the next day. 
I was made aware of it at 1130 that night, but I never saw it. So I was, I couldn't picture what I was doing in this photo until I saw it the next day. But once I see it, that was when I went to the paramedic and said, I've got a critical infant and the ambulance was full. They had a person on the floor, a person up on the bench and a person on the stretcher. And there was three or four people laying around the ambulance on backboards. And the reason I'm standing there looking at her, just standing there is the paramedic said, let me get a blanket because we're not, we're not going to put that baby on the ground. And so that's, I'm just standing there waiting for him, but I'm looking down at her, you know, thinking in my mind going, wow, you know, somebody's world is going to be turned upside down today. You know, and like I said, it was 20, 25 minutes into the incident. So not even realizing that particular feeling that I had, everybody else, other people are going to have around the building, you know, 167 more times that day, you know. So that's just what I kept thinking because I had a son, uh, Bailey. I found this out, you know, Bailey was a year old. She turned a year old the day before on April 18th. Oh. And I had a son at home who had just turned three. So, you know, one-year-old, three-year-old, you know, small child. So I, I, I could relate to, you know, being a father and thinking, or a parent and thinking, you know, I just can't imagine what these people are going to be going through. The paramedic took her from me and I just job adrenaline took over and I went and caught up with my, my crew and we were able to get another lady out that day. And then after that lady, it was pretty much for my crew on that part of the building was pretty much recovery the rest of the day until we got sent home at, uh, sent back to station about 11 or 1130 that night. Wow. That that just must have been so surreal. You guys going back to the the station and just being so numb. I'm sure you were numb because you you don't imagine seeing that much in your job. I mean, you're firefighters. You're trained for this, but again, this is something so astronomical that you wouldn't expect on your daily your daily grind of your oh, job. Uh, no doubt, it was. Um... And it was one of the deals where nobody wanted to go back. You know, you had to be, of course, you're not going to, you know, defy a direct order. But, uh, I mean, they weren't going to say, okay, who wants to go back to the station? Because they knew nobody would volunteer. They they gave us, you know, direct orders. You're being rotated out. You will go back to the station. Um, because we had to go, we had to, they had to rotate rigs in so you get some rest. So because we went back to the station, we made a house fire later that morning, you know, early in the morning, two or three in the morning. I mean, so it wasn't. You had the rest of the city to protect and things still going on. People were still having, you know, first aid calls, trouble breathing, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I will point, I've always heard, and I, I got it confirmed from a police officer that in that 24 hour period uh, from the time the bomb went off until the next 24 hours after that, and I'm not saying it spiked after that, but there was zero, zero crimes reported in the city of Oklahoma city that next 24 hours it was just uh it was crazy there was there were banks with uh bank right across the street with windows blown out teller drawers wide open blown out. every every red cent accounted for for those banks so that was a pretty amazing testament to to the citizens of uh you know oklahoma city just to me so but yeah it was a we got back and it was just a you go back and you just take a, a deep breath and just exhale. And we all just kind of sat there, you know, we, we really didn't talk about what we'd seen or what we'd done. We all just kind of sat there and, uh, and then the phone rang and I found out about the photo about 1130 and, you know, that kind of, uh, that kind of changed things a little bit, but, uh, 
we all found a way to get calmed down and relax and try to get some sleep. You know, and I touched on this a little earlier, so I want to get into it because I think people really need to understand that firefighting isn't glamorous, that it's really difficult mm -hmm. for a human soul when they experience things like this. And I've heard you mention this several times in past interviews that you felt really guilty about that photo being everywhere across the world because of right. what it would have done to, or what it could have done to Bailey's mom or how she felt about what had happened. And you put it so right. eloquently when you talk about it. So I don't even want to say your words, but I want you to tell everybody why you had that guilt because of that picture being everywhere across the whole entire world. Right. It was a, um, you know, and, and through the years I've learned that guilt is both rational and irrational. I've had my share of guilt that's been well-deserved and, uh, but irrational guilt, you know, it'll still, it'll still wear you out and weigh you down as, as much as anything. And, and what I was feeling was, especially when I, when I saw the photo the next morning in the newspaper, a guy brought a, uh, brought a newspaper in, in, in the daily Oklahoma in our paper, it was the, it was a, like an inset picture. It wasn't the big picture of the inset, but then there was a few other papers that guys brought in USA Today and it was on there and we put the TV on catch the morning shows and it was uh they were showing the reaction around the world to the Oklahoma City bombing and uh they were showing all these newspapers and headlines from around the country and every one of them in every language you can think of was showing that photo and my first thought was because they didn't they didn't have baby identified and my first thought was do these people even know I just felt I'm not a mother I know but I I just think a mother I thought a mother would say that's my child, you know, would recognize that mother instinct say, that's my baby. So I didn't even know if they had been notified or knew that their, you know, their baby had passed away yet. And as once, once things went on and, and, and I learned and met baby's mom, Aaron and all that and saw what she was going through, that's when I really started struggling with the guilt of, um, well, number one, that she didn't, she wasn't allowed to grieve privately. You know, a lot of people, I guess some people don't think it's that big a deal, but I mean, every, uh, you know, even at the, even at baby's funeral, they, they had to have, you know, police standing by because of people wanting to, uh, talk to her or the, uh, media, uh, you know, photographers up in trees so far away with their big zoom lenses trying to get pictures. And, and just like, so she wasn't allowed to grieve privately. I was the last one to hold her child. Uh, I felt like I took that away from her. And again, I say it's irrational guilt. I had no control over it, but in my, the human mind, in my mind, I just, I felt, you know, that number one, you should never have to bury a child. But number two, that I was the one who, I was the last one to hold her child that, that she had contact with, that she knew. So it was just something that it weighed on me, you know, really heavy. And then uh, the, the the guilt of being, of being singled out, especially in firefighting, it's such a team sport, I would say team effort. And um, you you hate being singled out, and they were using the word hero and heroic, and you know, and some reporters just were running with stories they heard, and I had to correct them when they would say, you know, about me saving this child, and so you're doing these interviews, going, you know, no, I, I didn't save the child. There was, you know, I didn't swoop in and catch this baby and save her life, and so that all that kind of stuff was, was weighing really really heavy on me, and. Uh, 
Um, but I always, I always like to say that as far as the being singled out deal, I had great outstanding support from the guys and girls on the Oklahoma City Fire Department supporting me. And when I would do interviews, you know, they would say, hey, man, good job. You're, you're making you, you look making fire department look good or all first responders. And, and, I, and I just, it's just some of the stuff I went through. And I really struggled with the photo. Uh, Chief John Hanson, he was our PIO at the time, did all the media updates. He was uh, um, he passed away a couple of years ago from cancer, but he's uh, he was definitely a mentor and a, and a guy that helped me get through that and helped me turn the the focus to say you know it's not about Chris Fields, it's not about Bailey Allman, it's about firefighter representing all the first responders you know that were there no matter what discipline they're from and for, you know Bailey representing the innocence that was lost that day whether it was through you know death or through physical injuries that some people are still recovering from today 25 years later so it helped a lot to put it in that perspective you know to say this guy this isn't chris field this is every first responder that's down there and this is the innocence that was lost that day so it was just a uh, that helped uh meeting aaron uh really helped which i met her the two days later which was i was not willing to do at first but uh it was a huge help meeting her sometimes that gives a family member or the mother, at least the opportunity to be able to grieve in a different way because of it being such a big media covered event and knowing that you were the last person that had her baby in your arms, that probably helped her in that sense, being able to meet you. And I'm sure that it probably helped you in a lot of ways too, to kind of absolve you of some of that guilt. It, it, it did. And it came about from a, a local reporter uh, call and call me and uh, got hold of me. I don't know. I don't even remember how. But uh, she said, "Hey, would you want to meet Aaron? That's the baby's mom." And I said, "No, I would not." <laughs> and because uh, I was just like, "What? Well, number one, what am I going to say to her? What's her reaction going to be?" You know, I didn't know. And she said, "Well, the reporter did." She said, "Well, I've been in contact with her, and she wants to meet you and Sergeant Avery." And I was like, "Well, then let's do it." You know, I don't. But I didn't feel like I had a choice. I felt like I owed it to her then because that's what you know she wanted that. And so uh, I was scared. I was nervous. And uh, me and Sergeant Avery went over there. And uh, it was it's kind of funny that this 20-year-old single mom, uh, dad wasn't in the picture at all, 20-year-old single mom who just lost her child uh, was was actually comforting the big, tough firefighter and the big, tough cop, you know. <laughs> she, uh, we were, we were bawling and she, she was, you know, hugging us and patting us on the back, and she was thanking us. Uh, the first thing she commented was that she was so thankful that she, at least she knew. She knew there were families still waiting that didn't even know about their loved one's fate yet. So she was thankful that uh, she knew the outcome. She knew that Bailey didn't make it. She thanked me and Sergeant Avery. She said she could, you know, she felt like Bailey was handled with care and love, so she thanked us for that. She said she could tell we were both bothered by the way we were handling her so things like that it did help it was a big help but i always take that away from that that it was this you know 20 year old single mom who just lost her only child comforting these uh big tough first responders uh and i was uh i was i look back and i said i was really lucky to be associated with aaron during all that well i for one can never thank first responders enough because i've talked to many people who were a, you know, involved in 9-11 who lost family members and friends. And some of those families never got the remains of their loved one. And, and it, as hard as death can be sometimes, the fact that this mother had her baby that she could bury, 
there's something right. there's something about that that is just amazing because it gives you that sense of peace as hard as it is to bury a child because again no one should bury a child but to have right. the body of your child and be able to find comfort in knowing that that beautiful soul is no longer missing you don't know right. you know that whole thing and i can't even imagine being that mom not knowing and then you know, like you said, you didn't even know if the family knew before that picture came out if she had perished in that event. Right, right. And like I said, it was it was, you know, some some bodies weren't identified for, you know, days or weeks. So those people were just, you know, reliving it every day, hoping to find out something and then and then not. Um and I've never been in that situation. I would assume you would hold out hope until you're actually told that, you know, but uh yeah, it was um it was a uh, it was a tough time. It was, um, but like I said, it was um, between you know John Han- Chief Hanson and his words, and Aaron, you know, saying the things she said to us. It made it you know there's still stuff I had to deal with, but it was uh, it was made. It was easier for me to put up a nice outside front <laughs> with uh, with her saying those words, you know. So going home with this after that happened, I- I'm sure that had to weigh on you facing that kind of an event and, and you guys probably had to go back and continue with the recovery work after that initial day, right? Yes. Yes. We all, we worked our regular 24 hour shifts. And when you, when we went to, cause it went on, I think it was like almost a month before they, you know, end up imploding the building. But when we would report to our shift, we knew that at least 12 hours of that shift, we were going to be down at the, at the site working and uh, pretty much, you know, in recovery mode after that, I think they, I think Dana Bradley, the young lady, they had to cut her leg off from the knee down to get her out. The doctor had to amputate the knee down. I think she was the last live person taken out that, that night of the bombing late. And then um, there, I think there were three victims left that there was absolutely no way to get them out and uh, maintain stability of the building. So, and these people are amazing how they do this stuff. Those people implode buildings, but they said it and they impl- they had to implode the building before they could get the final three victims out. And so it was, uh, it was just a month of, you know, you saw it every day, even on your day off, you couldn't avoid it. Even if you flipped your TV on for a second or picked the newspaper up, it's, it's, you think you can just avoid that, but you can't. I mean, you're going to pick the paper up, you're going to flip the TV channels and you're going to see coverage of it. So it's just something we had to, we had to relive every every day, and um, you know what I did was no more than than the other three or four hundred first responders, five hundred first responders that came down there. They all all experienced trauma. They all felt the same, had the same feelings I had. I was just it was just different for me because it was you know thrown into a into a national spotlight because of the photo, and um, that's where I um, you know ninety five PTSD. If we want to get into that, we want to get into that. Go for it. Okay. Uh, you know, in, in 1995, PTSD was, uh, it was maybe talked about a little bit about first responders, but still. More not military. A whole lot. Yeah, still, it was more uh, military. It, yeah, it was still a military. And anytime you saw a homeless vet on the street, they always related to PTSD. You know, that was just, that was just the stereotype of it back then. And, um, and it's because in the fire service and I don't, I'm assuming police because they're just like us. When I come on a 95, you know, it was suck it up, dude. If you you can't let that affect you. You got to carry on. We got to, just because you clear off this bad call, 
you got to be focused because we may be on another one or on a house fire in 20 minutes, you know, so you just got to let it go. And that's kind of the way I, I think about a lot of my retired mentors now about the things they probably suffered through, not thinking they could ever reach out until the day they, you know, died because it just was not done, you know, back then. And these were some grizzled, old, tough birds, you know, that I, that I was, uh, that taught me early in the fire service. So, um, so that's kind of the role I took on dealing with those, those emotions that, that I was with the guilt and all that. I just kind of, I thought, well, I can't let the, I can't let the guys and girls that work underneath me see me struggling. So I got to put on this, you know, facade, this little tough bravado and just say, I'm good. And then I can't let the people that had promoted me and put me in this position, the chiefs and everything, think I can't handle my job. So it was just something you learned to, to, to do just to push down and, and carry on. And, and I did pretty well. Uh, I mean, we're talking seven, eight, nine years that I just, uh, I would have bouts of, uh, you know, some bad days and bouts of depression and, but, uh, you know, I just, I hid it from the fire service. My wife can tell you, she saw little signs of it, but nothing, you know, bad. And then, um, this ha- the current house we're in now, we started to put a pool in in like 2004, 2003 or four. So that's eight or nine years later. And a lot of people don't know it, it rained that evening of the bombing. And so you had that smell of wet concrete dust. Well, we're putting this pool in. I'm helping some guys bust out my patio concrete. It started to rain. I got a smell of wet concrete dust. Um, I didn't. Now I know that's a trigger. I didn't mm-hmm. know what a trigger was back then um and i didn't like freak out or pass out i just thought to myself that smells just like the day of the bombing a lot of people don't even realize that at the second when you get those triggers it could be not just a noise but you could actually smell something or even see something that sets that trigger off oh no doubt hear something there's something you know there's people that hear certain noises Mm -hmm. and because of the noises inside the building that day you know with the Every now and then when a piece of concrete would uh, end up breaking loose from the rebar that was holding it and falling and or the sound of cutting rebar, you know, I know some guys that have struggled with that. And uh, I'll take it even further real quick before I go back into my deal. I have a friend who retired from here, moved down to uh, South Texas, talked to him one day asking how it was going. He said, I love it down here. He said, there's not one intersection that I drive by down here that takes me back to a bad call. So it's not even a sound. It's not even, it's just a place. He said, I can drive all over Corpus Christi where he lives and says, there's not one intersection that I can think. He made a bad car wreck right there. Or that's the street that the house fire was on that killed the family. Or so it's just, it's not even just smells and sounds. It's actually places, you know? And uh, I didn't even think about that until he told me that. I thought, wow, I never even thought about that. So uh, I, uh, I really started to notice after that, after that smell of that wet concrete dust, it was like a trigger. And I really noticed over the next year or so, uh, I really started noticing that I was isolating myself a little more. Uh, the, the, the little bouts of depression were more frequent. The uh, mood swings were more frequent. Frequent. The, the uh, anger, the little burst of anger were more frequent. I thought I did a pretty good, I did a tremendous job of hiding it from the uh, fire service. But I didn't try, and I didn't do a good job hiding it from my family. My my wife really started to notice, and then doing what wives do, she's just worried about me. She's asking questions, and 
I don't want to answer her questions. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and uh, I will say that I'm not a communication expert at all, but well, I have most learned. guys aren't. You come, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have learned when you come home from a whether it's not even a, a bad shift, you had a bad call, and they say, "How you doing? How was your shift?" You got to at least give them something. And the guy told me, "Then just say, you know what, honey, I had a pretty tough call." Let me have about three or four hours to decompress, nap, whatever I need to do. And then we can go do whatever. We can go do lunch. Because if you don't give them anything, they start thinking it's them. Right. Um, so my wife would ask me what was wrong, and I would say nothing. You know, I just I never related to the job. I never said we had a bad. I would just say nothing. And she knew because here I go from this overactive coaching my kids in ball, always on the go, doing something, uh, always want to be the life of the party and center of attention to, eh, I don't think I'll go, or what'd you do today? I didn't do nothing, or, you know, just, I just, I just changed, and, but I wasn't, I just, in my mind, I was just telling her to deal with it, you know, but I made sure that nobody at the fire department noticed, so just that basic, uh, I always heard uh, a good friend of both of ours, you know, Jay Dolan used to say, and, and it, it, it hit me hard when I heard him say it, I was more concerned about my my legacy with the Oklahoma City Fire Department than I was with my own family because I wanted to make sure that they thought I was okay and everything was good. And uh, so, you know, this went on for several years and uh, it got worse. My uh, my anger got worse and my mood swings and my depression and it got to where, you know, me and my wife were fighting all the time and uh, it led to me partaking with a little more drinking than I normally do and hanging out with guys that I shouldn't be hanging out with. Uh, and not that they're bad guys. They just, they were single. They just had different lifestyles than me. Right. I was married with kids. These are single dudes. And I'm thinking I can just do what they do. Just come and go, you know, and uh, that's not a good recipe. It led to, you know, uh, extramarital affair. And that's when me and my wife, we separated, we were separated for 16 months. So that's how long I kept up this little, uh, <laughs> Even 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 during the separation and living in this little apartment, I made sure everybody at the fire department knew that, hey, this is exactly where I want to be. This is, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm good, you know. And, um, and on the inside, I was just, you know, I knew I knew I wasn't doing right. I knew, but you get to a point you've done, I mean, I we don't have enough hours to talk about everything, but I had done enough things and offended enough people and humiliated and alienated enough friends and family that you get to the point where you don't really even think about the repercussions or the consequences if you just keep doing what you're doing, you know? Were you ever and, suicidal uh, through all of this? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, um, matter of fact, that's exactly where I was heading to. It was uh, just to save time here. I'll skip ahead <laughs> 16 months. So I'll go into all the gory details, but it came to a point to where I felt like I had screwed everything up so bad that there wasn't it wasn't a reset button to where I could just say, all right, I'm going to start this thing over. I just felt like I had alienated everybody, you know, humiliated my wife publicly and my sons and my friends. That only The only friends that I humiliated were the ones that were reaching out trying to help me. Those are the ones I told them, you don't understand. Leave me alone. I'll do what I want to do. Uh, the ones I was friends with were the ones that were saying, hey, man, do what you want to do. You know, you're a grown man. Those are my friends. <laughs> and, uh, I got to the point, and, and at that time, I had, through counseling and through some other stuff, I had, you know, gotten a prescription for Xanax, and 
the doctor wasn't a great friend, but if I just called him and said, hey, I need some more Xanax, he would give me a prescription. So, you know, and I had been in the fire service long enough at this point and made enough first aid calls. Now, I know I've made a lot of accidental overdoses, you know. Mm-hmm. So I just got to the point where I thought if I, because uh, I would, I would take the Xanax so I could just forget, relax, go to sleep. And I'd drink a little crown oil with it. That would always help. And then I thought, well, it got it just got to a point to where I thought, you know, if I can if I can get this mixture right, take me enough Xanax and drink enough alcohol that if I don't wake up tomorrow that everybody can everybody else can hit the reset button and start start you know, start their new lives without me around. And but I was so that's how I can't think of the word despondent I was and so, yeah yeah and then so so worried about what people still thought about me that I thought if I do it this way they can say oh it was an accident Chris would never intentionally take his life I was, I was worried about how they thought I would pass away you know I mean that's how caught up in myself I was and thought it was all about me I was more worried about how people would view me and make a way they could say well it was an accident he just took too much so what changed and, what changed? Why why didn't you kill yourself? What happened to change that? Well, I I did my mixture and I laid down and I woke up about I only remember two thirty, three in the morning at my apartment and was having a panic attack, sweating, freaking out, looking for my family. Uh, I only had two bedrooms, so I went from my bedroom to the other door to open up and I was looking for my, my sons who at this time were 10 and 17, but I was looking for them. I was picturing them in their baby infant stages. That's who I was looking for. And I couldn't find them. And I remember hitting my knees and, and freaking out. And that's really all I remember from the panic attack. Then I remember about six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning, waking up and laying on my back in the living room floor. And once I, confirmed that I was still in the present. <laughs> I uh I don't know, I just hit a I just hit a bottom and I hit a reality and said, There's no way that if I have a breath in my body that this is my, my purpose. Uh, you know, my sons have a father who's not real involved. My wife who hadn't left me yet, hadn't divorced me yet. So I just uh I was done. I just picked up the phone, I called my wife and I said, I'm ready to come home. And I'll tell you what, I, I did a, a matter of fact, I was out in Arizona at my friend's church speaking. And a, a gentleman asked me, said, when did you feel like things had turned and that everything was, when did you get to the point where you thought, okay, I can do this. Everything's going to be okay. And it's when I called my wife and said, I'm ready to come home. And she said, come on. And uh, I knew right then that if she, if God had given her the grace to forgive me and I knew I was forgiven by her and by God and by that everything was going to be okay. That's all I needed. And so, uh, but the hardest we, thing you haven't even talked about is forgiving yourself. That's even more hard than having forgiveness given by somebody else is forgiving you, yourself. Right. And I, and I, and I still, I still have days where I, uh, I still have days where I, I struggle with that. And, uh, but that's okay because I know how to, I don't, I don't rely on, Xanax and all that to get me through it anymore. So, uh, I just, uh, you know, I'm good. I'm it is. It's one of the, it's one of the 
hardest things to do is to forgive yourself. And uh, like I said, I still, I still struggle with it, but it's all good because I look at where I was and where I'm at now. And um, so anyway, me and like I say, me and my wife and, and people ask her, why did you, you know, cause I'm, her friends were telling her, kick him to the curb, man, be done. It's been 16 months, Cheryl, that's my wife. And uh, she just says, that's not Chris. She goes, I know it's not Chris I'm dealing with. She said, when I look in his eyes, it's just empty. She said, I just don't think it's him. And so we formulated a plan and I went to our fire department chaplain and went and got the, you know, help I need, went through counseling and went to a, a treatment facility out in California just for first responders, which was huge being around other first responders. You find out you're not the unicorn, that you're the only one that feels this way, you know, right? and, and has those has those struggles. And so that was a huge, huge first step. Um, and, you know, of course, being diagnosed PTSD and, and then not being scared to, to go to therapy and go to talk about everything and, and got with a counselor here in a town called Stillwater. It's about an hour from Oklahoma City. Um, Kathy Thomas, man, she's my, she's my little, she ain't four foot ten probably, but she's my, she's a superhero to me. She, she was my counselor and uh, we did EMDR therapy and what I, what I found out was the, the photo and the bombing and all that tied together was just really a catalyst for lots of unprocessed trauma that, uh, so, you know, I tell people it, it was not the Oklahoma city bombing and the photo and all that, that gave me the, that really, it was what, it was a catalyst, the kind of straw that broke the camel's back. It was the last thing that I could put in my, my closet, you know, before it all spilled out. And so, you know, I, 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 I'm blessed. I recognize I get my platform to talk to on shows like this with you and, and go around and speak. Um, I just always, you know, I, I recognize that I'm blessed and it's from the bombing. And I always, always pay tribute to the 168 victims that were lost that day and the lives that were changed because if it, I don't know where I would be, I don't know if I would have, if something else would have sent me over the edge and then I wouldn't have been to a point to get the counseling. I don't, I don't know, but I know from that, it led me down a path to where I was at the bottom. And uh, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be the the father I am today or the husband I am today or the friend I am today. And that's what's crazy. When I when I reached out, I reached out for help. The people that were reaching back to help me, it wasn't the ones that said, do what you want to do, you're a grown man. It was the ones that I had, you know, alienated and offended and humiliated. Those friends, those were the ones, and my family. Those were the ones reaching back out to help me. So... Thank God for that. That's it. Wow. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like I said, it was, uh, I always tell people, you'll be shocked. If you're a first responder or anybody that's experiencing trauma, you don't have to be a first responder. If you'll, you'll be shocked at the avenues and the people that are willing to, uh, to help you out. You know, and I'm really grateful that you can be so vulnerable in sharing what you've been through because we always talk about this. We don't really know who is listening, who is watching to what we post out there, who hears our stories, who reads the books, who is going to look at it like a survival manual to help them get through just one more day at a time. And for you to actually step out of that shadow and into the spotlight even more so now than you were back in 95 on the cover of every magazine across the world, you're doing remarkable things 
to not just help first responders, but you're opening up everybody's eyes to what a first responder takes home with them because you guys are supposed to be larger than life running in and you don't just rescue cats out of trees. You do things that is phenomenal. Most of us human beings will sit and watch a movie and be like totally enthralled by it, but not even knowing what goes on below the surface and the fact that you have to just program your brain and compartmentalize it and not deal with it on a daily basis because you're forced to go back out there and do what you have to do to serve the community. So for you to actually step out of that darkness into the spotlight, not only through your healing, but also to share what you've been through, I that is so commendable. I can't thank you enough for doing that because you never really know who needs to hear your voice right now in all of this. Right. And I, I thank you for that. And I wish I would have been the one smart enough to think of this. One guy says that, you know, tell your story because your your darkness may be somebody else's light, you know. Uh, and I, I've gone to speak to certain things where it's actually peer support teams, you know, from around the country that get together and have these conferences and stuff. And I always tell them, even if you're on a peer support team, if you've got a story to tell, tell it. Because uh, you'll never, you never, ever know who who needs to hear what you've got to say. You may think it's, you know, nothing. You may think it's, ah, it's really not that big a deal. I haven't experienced the trauma you've experienced. Well, it doesn't matter. Trauma is different for everybody. Everybody handles it different. You may help that one person out that feels they, you know, from one medical call, they had a reaction and they'll say, okay, I'm not the unicorn. That's the biggest fear is you think you're the only one. You can go, that was what was big for me going to West Coast post-traumatic was, was hearing other first responders and you do find yourself sitting there going okay suck it up fields your story is nothing compared to what this guy or this gal has been through you know and uh but it is it's just uh i just tell people you just you just tell your if you got a story especially if you're on a few people that are on peer support teams and stuff which is becoming a huge part of the first responder world you know uh what would be more appealing to somebody that's struggling knowing they're going to reach out to somebody that's been through it a lot of people think your peer support team members are these people that are strong and stout, and that's why they're on the peer support team because they can handle what you can't. And you're going no, it's not the fact. So that's what I'm saying. These peer support, if you got a story to tell, you've been through something, you tell it, and then it makes it so much easier for uh, a new guy or girl on the job to say, you know what, if that 20 year veteran right there that's on this team can get up and tell people what he's been through and experience, then I got no problem going to him or her. Or my officer, I got a problem. So it's just what you said, man. If you got a story to tell, tell it. That's, 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 I may get a tattoo that says that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I am so proud to know you because I've been watching you for a number of years now. And then we started talking last year. And I'm just grateful to see how you've come out of this whole journey. And I, I, you know, I can't thank you enough for sharing everything today. It's, it's very powerful when we get to see the inside story of what goes on and not just look at it from the exterior because you're you're a man, you're a firefighter, you're supposed to be what everyone thinks with this bravado, but below the surface, your skin, blood, bone like the rest of us, and you're no different. You're just a human being that's doing something that you love and you have a call to service. So I'm grateful that you shared this time with me today, Chris. Well, thank you. And and you just made an excellent point, especially with our current climate, you know, just 
underneath the skin, no matter what color it is, it's just, it's just human, you know, underneath. So it's just, uh, everybody experiences it. Everybody goes through it. We're, we're all the same. So it's just, uh, like I say, it's just, uh, it's an honor anymore, you know, to, it's a blessing for me to get to tell my story, especially if I think it's going to help somebody. And I, you know, I appreciate you letting me um, be on here with you today to, to tell it. Well, you're a very valued member of the collective, so you you are doing the wonderful things that the collective of the universe is doing out there, and you're sharing you're sharing gut wrenching, vulnerable things that is just it's beautiful. It's tragic, but it's beautiful. So again, thank you for doing that. I I, I thank you, Robin, for what you're doing too. You're uh, I'm a big podcast listener guy. I'm a radio show listening guy. I love positive stories. Uh, people overcoming tragedy and trauma. So, so what you're doing, uh, is, is commendable. I, I appreciate it. And if you ever need anything else from me, you just holler and I'm there. Ah, oh, thank you, big guy. I appreciate that. <laughs> you bet. You bet. <laughs> well, trauma can and does affect us all. We often look at first responders like they are superheroes, but remember even Superman had his kryptonite. Being exposed to something unimaginable to most of us is something that may seem very routine for them. But remember, they are human. They feel and they hurt just like the rest of us. For our first responders who are listening out there, understand that you are not alone. There are others out there like Chris who are sharing their stories in hopes of reaching you and letting you know that they are your brothers and sisters in arms, and they've got your back. If you need help or someone to talk to, please reach out to them. They are there for you. If you'd like to reach out to Chris, you can find him on Instagram, or you can go to his website at chrisfields.org. We're all in this together. Remember that. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you back here next time, and take care. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.